You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. All right, welcome to the show. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast about drugs that cuts through the bullshit, hosted by three journalists that have been there and back again, if you will. I'm Troy Farah, broadcasting from the California desert and eating psychedelic cacti. I'm Christopher Moraff, avoiding a fentanyl contact overdose in Philly. And I'm Zach Siegel, overdosing on edibles in beautiful Denver, Colorado. Our new podcast covers the drug war and people caught in the middle. Our first episode, which will begin momentarily... Is called Opioid of the Masses, where we question dominant media narratives swirling around the overdose crisis. Right. As journalists covering drugs, we're basically forced to be media critics, too. The three of us know that the overdose crisis is decades in the making. But it's just within the last couple of years that legacy media outlets began deploying their best health, science, and data reporters to actually tackle the subject. And don't get us wrong. We're glad that the issue is finally being taken seriously. Hundreds of thousands of lives are gone, but many more have been ruined by the justice system over 40 years of drug war. And all this breathless coverage, some good, some bad, but almost all misinformed, has fallen into traps laid by America's ongoing historical and cultural war on drugs. Exactly. And that's the vision for this show. Instead of feigning objectivity, pretending that every issue has only two sides to it, we're going to tell the stories how they're supposed to be told non-judgmentally, informed by science, data, and most importantly, from the perspective that drugs aren't always the bad guy. Ever since human beings have been alive, we've altered our consciousness using nature or otherwise. Right, so if someone's addicted to opioids, the knee-jerk response is always, well, stop doing opioids. But it's not that easy. People have what's called functional relationships with drugs, meaning drugs actually do something for that person. Let's explore that. At Narcotica, we think policing the desire to do drugs and locking people in cages for doing so is wrong, period. There's no other side to that story. Well, we can go on and on about this forever, but our first episode hits all these points. We talk about the epidemiology driving the crisis, we talk about myths of how fentanyl is deadly to the touch, and we offer a more nuanced take to the black and white model of addiction that has been dominant in America for so long. So let's roll the show. This is the new young face of fentanyl addiction. For drug cartels, the extremely potent opioid painkiller fentanyl is a bestseller. Our custom and border protection and these people, the job they do is incredible. Seized nearly 1,500 pounds of fentanyl last year, nearly three times the amount seized in 2016. And I told China, don't send it. And I told Mexico, don't send it. Don't send it. Something tells me they're going to send it anyway. I'm Zach Siegel, co-host of Narcotica, a new podcast about drugs and the people who use them that goes against the grain of traditional reporting about the subject. For this segment, on the myths and false narratives swirling around the opioid overdose crisis, I'll be putting illicit fentanyl under the microscope. It's a drug that everyone's really scared of right now, but it's also an FDA-approved drug in the opioid family, and it's used every day in hospitals and helps patients deal with severe pain. 
However, the fentanyl that's killing people en masse isn't pharmaceutical. It's being manufactured in clandestine laboratories, probably in Mexico, or precursors sent in the mail from China, and then mixed into heroin way high in the supply chain long before it hits the streets. So users never really know what they're getting. So that's why some fear around this drug is actually justified. In 2017, the New York Times analyzed overdoses and found deaths from illicit fentanyl jumped 540% in just three years. You might think prescription painkillers or heroin are the biggest problems out there, but illicit fentanyl is the number one driver of the ongoing opioid overdose crisis. Later in this episode, my co-host Troy Farrow will break down how the neat and tidy narrative about how we got here the story of greedy capitalist Big Pharma who duped unenlightened doctors into addicting their patients. Well, that's true to an extent, but misses the bigger picture. For now, though, I'm going to examine how justified fear about illicit fentanyl has spun into panic, hysteria, and real fake news. Not fake fake news, if you know what I mean. Good morning. Officer Chris Green of the East Liverpool Police Department came in contact with fentanyl while helping to arrest a couple of drug suspects during a traffic stop. Anyone who wants to know just how powerful and deadly fentanyl is should hear his story. You've probably already heard this story before. An Ohio police officer claimed that he overdosed on illicit fentanyl after brushing some off of his shirt during a bust. Let's listen to the officer's story in his own words. As I'm walking out the door, a captain of mine was like, hey, you have something on your shirt, on the back of your shirt. I'm like, yeah, whatever. And I kind of instinctively flick it off with my thumb. Within two minutes, I fall into the door, and that's the last thing I remember. That interview appeared in the New York Times' podcast, The Daily one of the most listened-to podcasts on the planet. With all that attention, eventually came some scrutiny. Skeptical toxicologists and doctors started asking really basic questions. Like, how does briefly touching a powder cause an overdose? I mean, hasn't our skin evolved over billions of years to keep toxins out of our bloodstream? How can a powder penetrate our skin in a high enough dose to cause an overdose? because that's what the officer's claiming. What the toxicologists are saying is that skin cannot absorb any opioid fast enough or in high enough dose to cause toxicity. So what are we to make of the discrepancy between first-hand accounts and scientific reality? I called up a firefighter who has been at the scene of several overdoses to get his take on this. My name is Kevin Lowe. I work at Cal Fire, and it's a firefighter. One, one thing I've been looking at is the extent to which, you know, skin absorption or just like a brief, uh, like, like skin contact with, with the illicit yeah. fentanyl, like whether or not that can really truly cause an overdose. Out of, it's I, absolutely I, I, possible. It, and just touching the patient without gloves, because usually they're, they're perspiring pretty badly, because they're overdosing, that shit's getting sweated out through their body, through their sweat. 
you know, we go over this shit and we go over these, um, there's other websites and stuff like that. They'll print it out and we'll go over them. But, you know, there's things where, you know, people, you know, they'll absorb it from the person that's overdosing. They'll absorb it just through skin to skin contact. And a lot of times what happens is, you know, you get, especially with car fentanyl, you get exposed to it, start feeling nauseous. You start feeling, you, you know, you're not feeling right. You kind of feel high. You tell your IC, your incident commander, you tell your captain or your, you know, who's ever in charge. And you tell them you're not doing good. Well, some people will go to the hospital, they get treated with Narcan, but because carfentanil is so powerful and it can last so long in the body that you know they'll be released from the hospital and then they can end up dying later or overdosing again in a way. And you can overdose multiple times throughout the day. All right. There's lots to unpack there. What Kevin is saying is that street fentanyl like carfentanil found in bags of heroin, is so powerful that it can be absorbed in a high enough dose to cause an overdose through someone sweating it out. So, if I'm a first responder giving someone who is overdosing CPR, then their sweat might contain fentanyl, and when I come into contact with their sweat, then it'll be absorbed through my skin and cause an overdose. Look, I'm not a doctor, nor am I a toxicologist, but something doesn't sound right here. Kevin said that he's read about this, and he's heard stories from his colleagues, so he's not alone in thinking this, and that's a serious claim with potentially deadly consequences. CPR is critical during the event of an overdose. Every second counts. And if I'm afraid of giving someone CPR, that can mean the difference between life or death or severe brain damage. To help sort this out, let's hear what a doctor has to say about these stories. My name is Jeremy Faust. I'm an emergency medicine physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and I'm on the faculty at Harvard Medical School. The first time I heard about these stories was on Twitter, and basically some very intelligent Toxicologists. These are these are people who went to medical school, who went to residency, who then did multiple year fellowships in clinical toxicology that has a lot of molecular toxicology. These are people who are the eggheadiest eggheads. They were tweeting about this, saying, "Well, that's ridiculous. There's, there's no way that this could happen. This is this is garbage." And I, I sort of retweeted that, and and I forgot about it, and I thought, well. They'll take care of this. This is their wheelhouse. I'm a physician who likes to write, and I like to do, you know, I'm a pretty skeptical guy about lots of things that, that appear in not just the mainstream media about, about medicine, but even our own peer-reviewed press. I'm a pretty skeptical guy because, you know, things are a little bit more complicated than we sometimes like to present. But to, I'm thinking at that time, leave it to the pros. They will take care of this one. And about a month later, I'm listening to the Daily Podcast, the, the New York Times, and they're covering the story like it's like it's real, like it, it like it's a real thing. And I and I look back and I think, well, did any of these toxicologists ever write a takedown? Did anyone sort of really speak out other than sort of tweeting, well, that's garbage? And it turned out that no one had. So this is where the physician writer light bulb goes on, and I pitch it, and I've got a piece to write. Under the headline. The viral story about the cop who overdosed by touching fentanyl is nonsense. Dr. Faust argues in Slate that these are sensational stories 
bordering on urban legend and that they're bogus. Touching powder cannot cause an overdose. He gives it to me straight. The main argument for why fentanyl cannot be absorbed in powder form through the skin is because of science and reality and clinical toxicology, the way that the molecules work, they just will not go through skin. And if they could, nobody would bother injecting it to get high. They would just take a small little amount and they sort of rub it in their skin and, you know, you'd have a nice little high from that. Well, obviously that's not how it works. And we know this because it took the pharmaceutical companies that developed fentanyl patches years and years and millions of dollars of research just to create a, a skin matrix that could actually open the skin enough over right. time. Right, and that's the transdermal patch that they give yeah. to people in very severe pain. Right. Right. So, and to give you an example, there's a lot of fentanyl in those patches, and but to overdose on them, you have to, you actually have to put multiple patches all over your body for a long period of time. I actually will see that occasionally. I'll see a cancer patient who's got a fentanyl patch or two on, and then they're, it's not covering their pain, and they put another one on, and they come in a little woozy, and you know that's that's what happens. So basically, you know the the the, the chemistry and the biochemistry is that this cannot happen. You know, then there's these other sort of, well, what if, what if we aerosolize it? Or what if, what if people inhaled it? What if they sniff it? And to that I say, well, yeah, but that's a very different question. You can weaponize anything. So it's, fentanyl is not special because you can weaponize it and like this, this, there's like this anecdote of the Russians supposedly using it in right. the theater to knock everyone out. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's true or not. It seems like it, there might be some veracity to that. But you could weaponize anything. Um, it's not like these compounds are special. And then in terms of like inhaling or ingesting, well, yeah, you should not inhale or ingest or inject fentanyl because it's a very powerful opioid um, that can, it can cause clinical effects ranging from pain relief, analgesia, to somnolence, to death. So fentanyl will not reach your system through skin, and so I'm, 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 uh, I'm happily unafraid to get near it as long as I don't have any intention of, of jamming a needle into my arm or, or you know, or stuck, you know, putting a bunch of it down my mouth. This is where things start to get really messy, because something's actually going on here. EMTs and first responders are passing out and fainting at the scenes of drug busts and overdoses. So what's really going on? i give you a very nice example that yeah. broke this week. You had a, a case of someone in the field who thought they were touching fentanyl. It turns out that the field testing for fentanyl was positive. So they initially thought it was fentanyl. The field tests are a little clunky. They're not so, they're not so accurate. Um, this, the, the patient, uh, the, the responder had some sort of um, response, clinical response, that they thought was an opioid overdose, took them to the hospital. Um, patient did fine. They uh, send the stuff to the lab. It turns out the field testing was wrong and it was actually methamphetamine and cocaine, which has completely opposite effects of right. fentanyl from yeah. a clinical toxicology perspective. But what, so probably um, no matter what the powder was that this person touched, given the hysteria that's out there, they, their body was going to mount some sort of reaction, some physiologically mm -hmm. noticeable reaction because the mind is very powerful. So it doesn't matter what they touch. If they think it's fentanyl, they'll start to have fentanyl-like exposures. Right. And this is right. And, and this is actually just the amazing ability of, of the body and the mind. And, and, you know, one of the great examples of this, if you, you know, read even like back to like Bertrand Russell and then later on like Sam Harris, these, 
these philosophers will tell you some pretty amazing things like if, if I walk into a room and I say, ladies and gentlemen, there's a fire, you need to leave, your heart rate goes up, you, you're, you're, you, know, you start sweating, uh, your blood pressure rises. I can measure these effects. And so just by putting a belief in your head, a physiological, reproducible, measurable medical event has occurred. Uh, and then I, but if, if the same thing happens and I walk in, but I'm wearing like, a, you know, like a clown suit and I look like I'm not believable and I say, hey, everyone, there's a fire, your brain goes, nah, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's true. I'm not going to raise my blood pressure. I'm not going to, my heart rate's not going to go up. So this idea that like our brains cannot affect what happens to our bodies it's actually, it's actually wrong. Like, I, th I think that we don't give ourselves enough credit for the kind of physiological response we can create just based on a belief. In a New York Times op-ed that Dr. Faust co-authored with Edward Boyer, titled, Opioid Hysteria Comes to Massachusetts Courts, they suggest that what's really going on might be full-on panic attacks, perhaps caused by what's called the nocebo effect wherein people think that they might have encountered a drug and exhibit symptoms of that drug, even though they didn't. It's certainly plausible. But the surest way of knowing would be to examine the blood or urine of officers like Green in Ohio after the incident. But HIPAA and other privacy keeps us from looking at that information. Basically, if no opioid was in their system, then it couldn't have been an overdose. Or, if an opioid was in their system, maybe officers are using on the job. Who knows? But what's important to note here is that the overdose crisis has really changed the job of first responders today. And let's talk about that. The trauma and how hard the job of responding to overdoses day in, day out has really become. Director of Planning and Policy at the Harm Reduction Coalition. We're a national group that works on health issues related to drug use, and so I oversee our policy, training, and capacity building for programs across the country. Daniel Raymond is a drug policy expert, and he agrees that panic is indeed stirring myths about fentanyl. But he also speaks to the dark times first responders are facing during a crisis of this magnitude. Of a certain level among the people who are responding to multiple overdoses, whose jobs five years ago might have looked very different in terms of the number of calls they got, the number of runs they made, the kind of incidents they handle, and now it's this deluge of multiple overdose calls to shift. And I think it's not unreasonable to imagine that some of these first responders, law enforcement on the front lines, are experiencing something like trauma and burnout and that we're not necessarily giving them the resources to kind of support them through what is, in reality, a very stressful job, um, and one that perhaps their past professional training didn't fully prepare them for because this is a new situation. So under that, and I think it's probably you know difficult to admit, yes, I'm traumatized, yes, I'm experienced this, but there's possibly a temptation to sort of displace all of that onto these external fears um, in a way of kind of managing that, that sense of, you know, another day, 13 more overdoses I responded to. We got there in time for 12 of them, but we lost one. 
Maybe the sensationalism is linked to both trauma and burnout. It's not that Officer Green of Ohio or Kevin from California are bad people, or that they're dumb, or that they're even liars. Their job is hard, and they might feel outmatched in their efforts to address a drug crisis. Arresting the same dealers, reviving the same users, must be exhausting, and is by now maybe beginning to feel a bit futile. EMTs are saying, we can't Narcan our way out of this. They're looking for structural change that addresses root causes. I don't blame them. I count myself among the exhausted just trying to cover this, and have even experienced secondary trauma from interviewing so many families who have lost loved ones. My own good friends and some sources I know have died over the years from overdoses. That's why I think this whole thing gets really messy, because there's a broad range of real human suffering involved. But the implications of spreading false information about a drug has serious consequences. During overdoses, like I said, every second counts, and as a result of hysteria, first responders might be delaying their rescue breathing, increasing the chance of brain damage or death. That's why Dr. Faust and others have committed to writing article after article debunking these myths. But it's also harming the movement to roll back the war on drugs and reform harsh drug sentences. Here's Daniel Raymond again. And that's what I've found helpful to think of as fentanyl exceptionalism. So even policymakers who are broadly good on drug policy, on public health, on harm reduction, fentanyl becomes the exception because we've tolerated this representation of fentanyl as having these exceptional qualities. And so it justifies and underwrites exceptional measures to address this threat. And it, so it becomes this logical vicious circle where, well, we're doing this because fentanyl is so dangerous. Why is fentanyl so dangerous? Well, we've heard it's dangerous because it's absorbed through the skin, all of that stuff, rather than being located on a spectrum of harms that may require different steps. What Daniel Raymond is saying is that the hysteria surrounding illicit fentanyl is leading us down the wrong road. Hazmat suits, ramping up incarceration, politely asking Mexico and China to stop sending fentanyl over here, the death penalty for drug dealers, none of that's going to help save people from overdosing. So what about Kevin, the firefighter? He sent me a rather angry email not long ago after he realized that I didn't believe touching fentanyl could cause overdoses. Here's what he said. If you're going to continue to believe that skin-to-skin contact, as well as the many other ways first responders can come into contact with fentanyl, leave my name off any documents or reports saying otherwise. I explained to Kevin that he'd already agreed to be recorded, and that I couldn't find any reports that suggest what he'd believed was true. So, for now, we're going to have to go with the experts real documented evidence that show touching fentanyl is not going to kill you. But to conclude, 
Experts have told me to think of illicit fentanyl as a poison, an adulterant, something that few people really actually want in their drugs. But that doesn't mean we can give the drug extra qualities, extra properties that it doesn't possess. It's better to know of fentanyl's presence, which can be done by drug checking. That means testing a bit of powder to see what's actually in it. That way, users can make informed decisions and stay alive. Daniel Raymond and lots of others think we need supervised injection facilities, also known as safe consumption spaces. Basically, these are medical settings where drug users can go to inject their drug under medical supervision. They exist all over Europe, and there are quite a few in Canada now as well. And in all their existence, no one has ever died inside one of these spaces. Maybe that's what we need. I'm Zach Siegel, and thanks for listening to Narcotica. Up next is Narcotica's Troy Farah on some of the complex issues that led to the overdose crisis. The war on drugs, waged longer than a century, is now at its most devastating. In 2016, 64,000 people died from drug overdoses, according to the Centers for Disease Control. That's more than the entire number of American lives lost in Vietnam, 58,000. And that number is still rising. You've probably heard all these statistics before. After all, every major news outlet has unleashed their top health reporters to cover what drug journalists like myself have long known to be a major national crisis. I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. In this segment, I'm going to push back against the comfortable narrative about the overdose crisis that will fundamentally challenge how it is we got to this point where illicit fentanyl is now killing more people than prescription painkillers and heroin. Where did all this start? What's the genesis? Well, it's complicated. But if you ask the media... So tonight, we're going to look at one of the major causes of this crisis, prescription painkillers. We have currently nearly 250 million prescriptions for opioids written every year. That's enough for every adult in America to have a bottle of pills, and then some. Lindsay Granke Harrington still remembers her spiral from OxyContin into heroin addiction. I think I lost everything in 30 days. I so think, for her, uh, today's change to OxyContin's marketing is a long time coming. OxyContin is one of the drugs that was told to people that there weren't any risks, when in fact, all it did was create an epidemic. By now, this story is all too familiar. In the late 90s, doctors began to prescribe more opioids for more conditions than ever before. Why? We're told that Purdue Pharma, the manufacturer of OxyContin, tricked doctors into thinking their blockbuster drug was safe and carried a low risk of addiction. That marketing turned out to be false, like really false. And in 2007, Purdue paid $600 million in criminal fines for misleading marketing. While the rate of prescriptions quadrupled from 1999 to 2010, so did the number of deaths. So case closed, right? In order to fix the overdose crisis, we need to drastically reduce the amount of opioids out there 
and we'll get ahead of this problem. Well, that's what the CDC thought would happen anyway. Here's Tom Frieden, former director of the CDC. To reverse that increase, we need to improve the management of both pain and addiction, and law enforcement needs to make illicit drugs less available, more expensive, harder to get, uh, and all of that is important to reverse what has been a terrible epidemic of opiate abuse, addiction, and death. While director of the CDC, Frieden said that the overdose crisis is doctor-driven and can therefore be reversed by doctors' actions, mainly prescribing fewer opioids. But here's the thing. The rate of prescriptions for opioids has steadily dropped since 2011, and yet the overdose crisis has gotten exponentially worse since then. Clearly, Frieden's hypothesis as director of America's premier public health agency was wrong. The CDC's efforts were singularly focused on reducing the reservoir of painkillers out there. Meanwhile, around 2010, a nuclear bomb in the form of heroin went off, and it didn't take long until more people were dying from heroin overdoses and opioid overdoses. To help sort out why this is the case, I spoke with a physician and researcher who specializes in addiction. I am Aaron Fox. I'm a physician. I'm trained as a primary care physician. I'm also board certified in addiction medicine. I'm the medical director for the Bronx Transitions Clinic, which uh, provides medical care to people who are returning home from jail or prison. I also do clinical research on buprenorphine treatment for opioid use disorder. So I have a couple of studies that are funded by the NIH, which are evaluating different behavioral interventions to pair with the medication buprenorphine for people with opioid use disorder. We constantly hear that we're in the midst of an epidemic, but we don't really stop to think about what that means and how by defining it that way, maybe the CDC misdiagnosed the problem. Right away, Dr. Fox takes issue with this framing. I also understand some of the concerns about calling it an epidemic because really the majority of people who use opioids uh, don't end up overdosing and the majority of people who take opioid painkillers don't end up becoming addicted to them. So it's not really an epidemic in, in this sense of like a virulent infectious disease that was spreading throughout the population. Uh, I usually refer to it as uh, the opioid overdose crisis because I think a lot of communities really are in crisis about neighbors dying and people aren't sure what to do. Already, Dr. Fox has identified a critical bit of information that rarely makes it into news stories. Who among us hasn't been prescribed painkillers for wisdom teeth, appendectomies, or some other surgery? Many Americans take opioids every day for legitimate medical reasons, and the majority of us don't get addicted. But public health officials like the CDC's Tom Frieden are saying that these painkillers are, quote, as addictive as heroin. Let's hear Dr. Fox flush out more about many causes of the crisis. The public and uh, especially doctors, have this sense that these overdoses are being driven by people on pain medicine. And this idea that somebody has an injury or they go in for shoulder surgery, they end up getting placed on an opioid that leads to long-term opioid use. And then inevitably, the doctor decides to stop prescribing, and then they end up uh, using heroin or another fentanyl or, or one of the synthetics. And uh, I think really that narrative is, uh, is off. 
Now, I'm no pharma apologist, and neither is Dr. Fox. Companies like Purdue got rich from their bogus marketing. Insys Therapeutics, which not only makes sublingual fentanyl sprays and synthetic THC, donated half a million dollars to the anti-recreational marijuana campaign in Arizona, which helped legal weed fail. Why did they do this? To protect their bottom line. Last October, their CEO, John Kapoor, was arrested for conspiracy to defraud health insurance providers, but not for funneling dark money into Arizona elections, which is technically legal. But righteously blaming Big Pharma is a problem because it distracts from many other causes of the crisis, causes that might lead to more effective solutions. It's a complex problem, and there's really many causes. So a lot of the things that people do point their finger at or blame, like pharmaceutical company marketing or lack of good options for pain care or doctors' inadequate training in pain management and addiction or pill mills or economic changes across the United States or poverty and depths of despair. All those things are really uh, rooted in some truth. But I think in particular, the problem with blaming the pharmaceutical companies as, as evil is that it exaggerates the risk of taking opioids for pain. Dr. Fox mentioned deaths of despair, a phrase coined by economists Ann Case and Angus Deaton, who identified economic disadvantage and poor financial prospects as a major factor contributing to a massive loss of life. What we're finding is that for every successive birth cohort, so people born, say, in 1960 relative to 1950 or 1980 relative to 1970, um, what we call deaths of despair, deaths from suicide, from drug overdose, from alcohol-related liver diseases, are on the upswing, and each successive birth cohort looks like they're at higher risk. People dying in droves from suicide, alcohol, and opioid overdoses aren't victims of Big Pharma's greed or idiot doctors. Their deaths are symptoms of a sick society, from a late-stage capitalist culture that places value on how much you can secure for yourself and anyone that can't provide for themselves is unmotivated, inept, stupid, or worse, just fucking lazy. Almost no one takes a drug for no reason, and opioids do a damn good job of numbing the emotional pain associated with a cookie-cutter civilization constantly at war, not only overseas, but domestically as well. It's no surprise that in the midst of a crisis, journalists are telling sensationalist stories about the most severe cases. They can be almost post-apocalyptic. And Dr. Fox wonders, where's the hope? It really gives this sense of futility. And in these stories, you never really hear uh, from either people who have used drugs themselves or people currently with heroin addiction and what their perception of the problem is and what they need. For recovery, I mean, you don't hear about potential solutions that communities could be implementing. Yet, all this rhetoric around opioids being bad and pharma being evil is actually causing real harm to patients who need these drugs. Many commit suicide after losing access to opioid medications. Media's hyper-focus on pharma is leaving out the fact that opioids are a medical necessity for some people. So what is it going to take to get this right? A lot of the problem stems from the fact that we're not asking the right question because we really have focused on this, you know, opioid, prescription opioid narrative. Right now, 
the pendulum has really swung the other way and we're denying medication to a lot of people who really do need it and they end up turning to the black market and overdosing and dying as a result. Sometimes they commit suicide. That's Leo Beletsky, Associate Professor of Law and Health Science at Northeastern University. He's an expert at analyzing the social detriments of population health with an emphasis on how people behave in complex systems. We all want this crisis to be wrapped up in a neat little bow, but Beletsky realizes that a problem this massive should remain complicated. He argues that the overdose crisis is a symptom of a decaying health infrastructure and that fixing it will require a lot more work than just cracking down on opioid prescriptions. I think there's a lot we don't understand about how our healthcare system manages various problems and what we need to do to manage them in a less deadly way. Just even medication-related errors, so errors related to people getting counterindicated drugs or drugs with incorrect dosage and so forth, those issues with the healthcare system kill over 22,000 Americans every year. So... You know, we're just very bad at managing people's health and emotional needs in this country. And I think, you know, trying to sort out why that is and how to do it better is one of the key questions in this entire debate. The majority of people who die from drug overdoses are isolated from the health care system. Part of increasing access to health care is expanding medication-assisted treatment, such as buprenorphine or methadone. These are opioids that don't give quite the same high as, say, heroin or hydromorphone, but they do allow people to manage their lives better, go to work, stay in school, feed themselves, function in society. Other health programs we need to expand include sterile syringe access services, as well as programs for naloxone, which is an opioid overdose reversal drug. And if U.S. policymakers are really serious about fighting this overdose crisis, we need supervised consumption sites to open, like they have in Canada, Australia, throughout Europe, and other parts of the world. These supervised consumption sites prevent overdose deaths, stop the spread of HIV and hepatitis C, help substance users get into treatment, and connect to other welfare systems such as housing, food assistance, and on and on. Folks need to be a lot more vigilant and active in the policy discourse around responses to this crisis. I think a lot of times policymakers engage in sort of knee-jerk response of legislation and policymaking that is unmoored from the back. And that is something that has occurred en masse here and, and is in many ways responsible for the trajectory of this crisis now being, you know, substantially worse, like, three times worse than it was 10 years ago. So, you know, if you think of our society as a patient, we've misdiagnosed and mismanaged this patient. We can't allow that to continue in many ways that it's continuing and it's very destructive. So I would just urge people to get the facts and try to influence the debate in in ways that make those policy responses more productive. So, even if the overdose crisis or the wealth of misguided policy decisions doesn't directly affect you, get out there, make some noise, and demand sensible strategies to stop people from dying from narcotics. I'm Troy Farah, reporting for Narcotica. Up next, Christopher Marath. He looks at the limitations of the disease model of addiction by interviewing actual drug users on the street in Kensington, Philadelphia.
How long you been at it, man? You you old head? Yeah, I've been at it since I was in my early 30s. I'm 60. That's Jeffrey. I've run into him several times over the past year in North Philadelphia, where I've been reporting on the overdose crisis pretty much full-time. On this day, I saw him at a dirt lot that's used as a de facto shooting gallery in the heart of Philadelphia's Badlands area. This has been the epicenter of the retail heroin trade for as long as anyone can remember. He was collecting used syringes in a plastic soda bottle to exchange for new ones, which he'll sell on the street for a buck apiece. For decades, Jeffrey, who's homeless and addicted to heroin, was viewed by society as morally degenerate, part of a transient subculture of individuals who lacked the willpower to stop engaging in self-destructive behavior. But that thinking has changed. This is Christopher Moraff reporting for Narcotica. Here's former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie during his 2017 State of the State address, which focused on the overdose crisis. Drug addiction is a disease. A disease. It is not a moral failing. Back in Kensington, it's pretty clear this message has trickled down to drug users. Mental illness is considered a disease. So just because it's not curable or it's not medical related, it's still, it's still a disease. Addiction is a disease. And I have an addictive disease. It's absolutely a disease. That was Anna, Mark, and Steve. They don't know each other but I run into them individually quite often in the course of my field reporting on the overdose crisis. They share little in common beyond a physiological need to consume opioids every few hours to keep withdrawals at bay, and the impact that urgent need has had on their lives, which for all three of them includes homelessness. But what keeps them trapped in that predicament has become the subject of an evolving dialogue that is beginning to question the messaging they've received, that the root of their condition lies in a medical disorder that they'll have for the rest of their lives and is as out of their control to change as cancer or diabetes. The so-called disease model of addiction has been the dominant framework for understanding substance abuse for at least two decades, driven by innovations in brain science and its promotion by organizations like the National Institute on Drug Abuse and the American Society of Addiction Medicine. According to ASAM, drug and alcohol addiction is a chronic disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, and related circuitry, which is characterized by, among other things, an inability to consistently abstain from drugs and alcohol and a diminished recognition of significant problems with one's behavior and interpersonal relationships. This prevents people who abuse drugs from stopping despite negative consequences. When I asked Jeffrey about this, though, he offers a more nuanced interpretation of his circumstances. People, it doesn't only have to be they ready to stop. It's like they do want to stop, but when they stop, they have nothing to look forward to. They have no jobs, no housing, no normal friends, as you call them, because their friends are usually the ones that's dr drug addicts that get, they get high with, you know? And then once they start to get high, everybody else cut them off. 
they don't have no support, no help, no money. So they look at it, why should I stop? I have nothing to look forward to. I don't have a place to go. I don't have no clothes. I don't have nothing, you know? So they say, well, why? I might as well keep doing what I'm doing until they kill me. Contrary to A. Sam's take, Jeffrey seems quite aware of the significant problems his addiction has caused. The way he describes his drug use seems less about an unquenchable desire to use heroin, despite its negative consequences, and more about his belief that there's nothing else out there for him. It's as if becoming a drug addict is something he learned to do through a combination of material loss, social stigmatization, and a descent into hopelessness. Prompted by a sharp rise in the number of Americans becoming addicted to and dying from opioids, many addiction experts are beginning to rethink the simplistic frames that have helped us understand drug addiction in the hopes of better addressing the problem. It's important um, to define addiction appropriately and to understand what we're talking about for a multitude of reasons. Maya Salovitz is a journalist and author who has written extensively on the subject of addiction. She says the notion that addiction is a medical disorder has helped lift the stigma for drug users and alcoholics, making it easier for them to seek treatment. If we call it a sin or just some kind of bad habit that people are willfully engaging in in order to annoy other people or destroy other people, um, then we're going to have a very different attitude towards it than if we recognize that it's something that people are engaging in in order to cope or in order to, um, you know, just feel comfortable in their own skin. In her book, Unbroken Brain, Solovitz offers a sort of middle ground between addiction being a choice and a chronic medical condition like heart disease or diabetes. She says people who are addicted to drugs are suffering from a learning disorder. Now, when I talk about learning disorder, I think the sort of classic example here is something like ADHD. And you're wired kind of differently than other people. You might be slightly more impulsive. You might be um, slightly seeking of more extreme experiences. And that wiring in itself isn't bad or wrong or anything like that, but it can set you up to engage in activities that can be risky to yourself and others. Salovitz is not alone in challenging the dominance of the brain disease theory of addiction. Last year, a group of scientists in Europe launched an informal working group called the Addiction Theory Network with the aim of opposing the dominant influence of the brain disease model of addiction and to collaborate on developing alternative ways of understanding and responding to addiction. Nearly 100 scholars have signed on to the movement, which argues that the disease model presents a one-dimensional view of substance abuse and that addiction cannot be divorced from its social, psychological, cultural, political, legal, and environmental contexts. The reason that it seems so black and white is not so much because of the disease model, because diseases uh, often have spectrums of severity. Dr. Mark Willingbring of the Altier Clinic in Minnesota, which treats substance abuse disorders using a continuum of care, is a critic of the way the disease model has informed the treatment sector. It turns out that cross-addiction is largely a myth. It's a fiction. One of the many, many myths of rehab there's no such thing as uh, an addictive personality. Different drugs are different. And whether a drug is prohibited or not 
distorts the spectrum. Willenbring says that the disease model has a tendency to diminish the magnitude of influence that factors such as a drug's legality or the socioeconomic status of its user can affect how and the extent to which symptoms of substance abuse manifest themselves. But he's not ready to dispense with it just yet. He believes addiction has many commonalities with our traditional notion of disease, including a strong genetic component and a wide range of severities. The problem with, uh, with the approach of the folks who claim it's not a disease is, is that they think that it's simply a learned behavior that can be unlearned. And that simply isn't the case. It cannot, in, in most cases, it cannot be unlearned. It cannot be unlearned in the sense that you can go from using heroin uh, daily, multiple times a day, to using it once a week. That just doesn't happen. But what if that's because, for legal, moral, or cultural reasons, we've never really considered that a desirable option? I'd been communicating with Jay over social media for a few weeks before we met in a parking lot in South Philadelphia, where he agreed to be interviewed for this story. He told me little about himself, except that it had been about two weeks since he'd used dope. I'm driving a black Infiniti FX35, he texts me from the road, which a quick Google search tells me is a $40,000 SUV. Jay is my age, 47, and I imagine encountering a man who is tired and beaten down from years of drug use. I'm not the average mountain biker. I do downhill mountain biking, you know, off 20-foot drops. I live on that adrenaline, that rush. I'm clearly not in Kensington anymore. Jay has been involved in extreme sports since he was a child and he also started using drugs at a young age. By the time he was 19, he had suffered his first overdose from snorting heroin. He decided then and there he would quit for good, and that lasted seven years. Then his father died from complications of alcoholism. And you know how it is to start using on the weekends, I start using weekends on a Wednesday, and then Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and next thing I know, I'm doing it every day. Since then, he's been through almost every kind of treatment. He's been to rehab in Florida, he's been on two methadone clinics, and to several Suboxone doctors. But he could never escape the lure of heroin. So, about five years ago, he just stopped trying. So from 2013 until now, you know, I've been chipping or, you know, not to the point where I was before. Um, I'll use occasionally. Sometimes I'll go on a week bender, two week benders. A lot of help from Suboxone. Jay manages bike stores, drives for Uber, and he's IT certified. He knows he's on a potentially slippery slope. His wife doesn't know he uses heroin, for instance. But thanks to therapeutic interventions like Suboxone, he's found a way to leverage medication and self-control to manage his symptoms in a way that seems to work for him. I've been afflicted with it, and I'm sick, and it's incurable. I will always have this, you know what I mean? I can control it, um, but I'm always gonna be an addict. I'll always have that addiction. I've learned how to control it, and I know the warning signs to, to you know what I mean? 
Um, and I guess it's just like, it's like, you know, they say 10,000 hours, if you do anything for 10,000 hours, you become an expert. If you play guitar for 10,000 hours, you're going to become an expert. You know what I mean? I think I've used dope over 10,000 hours. Um, so, you know, I know how to do it. Where's that stupid? not sitting on it, are you? Um, yeah, I am. I'm sitting in a car with Mike, a 43-year-old heroin user who's been trying to control his drug use for a decade. Mike has been homeless for a year and for most of the winter was living in a drug user encampment under a bridge in the Kensington area. I'd been talking to him regularly when he got picked up for violating his probation on a drug possession charge. His last call to me late one night, was from the police station. He asked me to call his mother to let her know he'd been locked up. I didn't speak to Mike while he was in jail, but he called me the day after he got out from a payphone in Kensington. I could tell from his voice that he was high. By the time we met up a few days later, he told me that he had his habit back. Between drags on a cigarette, Mike does his best to explain the roller coaster ride that is his addiction. To answer your question, what made me come out from jail the other night and, and go right back to using, uh, after I actually was in jail talking about how I didn't want to use, it, it almost seems like there's no rhyme or reason, no riddle, no answer to this problem. And, it, and it's a shame. Um, I mean, I have ideas and things I think it's definitely more than one thing. You can't sit here and, and point the finger at any one thing. There's so much that goes into it. The biggest thing for me is getting some housing because so long as I'm in the street, I'm not, I'm not gonna get clean. Um, every day, the stress of what I go through, not knowing where I'm gonna eat, not being able to shower, having stress and uh, all types of problems, law, legal problems, uh, things hanging over my head that bother me on a daily basis. And, uh, you know, having to sleep outside and the elements and not knowing where I'm going to sleep and, and being told what to do, when to do it, you know, when I sleep in these shelters and getting woken up at uh, 5 o'clock in the morning when, when I only fell asleep there at midnight, you know, or, or 1 o'clock in the morning, it's not getting sleep properly. Like, it's, it's been a tough road lately. This is a message I hear frequently. My life is in shambles because I use, and I can't stop using because my life is in shambles. On the way back from meeting Mike, I stopped by the lot where I encountered Jeffrey. He's not there, but Anna is. She's sitting behind a makeshift wooden desk selling service, which means she's trading money or drugs to inject people who can't inject themselves. Do you aspire to have, like, a life where you just um, don't have to get high to get fixed and well? Or? I mean, I wish I did, but, like, sometimes it just doesn't seem like there's no point. It's like, once you're an addict, you're always an addict. Addiction may be a chronic disease, but does it have to be progressive? Is jail, the graveyard, or the street really the only three outcomes for an addicted person? Or have we, as a society, constructed the narrative surrounding drug use so narrowly that we've closed off any other option for users who have no desire to quit. If one of the primary indicators of addiction is unmanageability, why is it that so much of public policy surrounding drug use 
is designed to make the lives of drug users more unmanageable rather than less. I need to get high to fucking just drown out my problems from like addiction-related problems. There's no reason why I shouldn't think life isn't fucking worth living without drugs. So I'm wrong with that. Thank you for listening to episode one of Narcotica, Opioid of the Masses. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast. That's also our website, which will have tons of background information about this episode, including citations and more about the people we interviewed. That's N-A-R-C-O-C-A-S-T. Com. If you liked what you heard and want to help us stay independent and ad-free, donate what you can to our Patreon. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash narcotica. At this point, any contribution is a big help. If you have an idea for a show or just want to tell us what you're thinking about, send us a tip to tips at narcocast.com. Narcotica is an independent production by Troy Farah, Christopher Marath, and me, Zachary Siegel. Our co-producer is John Ahrens. That's it for now. Mm-hmm.